I'm Mike Gerbens, and welcome to It's Your Water. I'm glad you found us. The subject for the podcast today is understanding why there is a pH shift when treating with a strong base anion resin. The pH shift occurs when treating water for what we do, mostly the water treatment dealer industry, is for treating for organics, tannins, nitrates, uranium, or high alkalinity. We're going to understand ins and outs of anion resin because anion is a little more complex than just your regular old cation resin. Today we have a really special guest. He's Ted Begg from the Pure Light Company. Ted, welcome. I'm really pleased that you could do this and you found the time to do this. Well, thank you, Michael, and thanks for the invitation. Yep, I'm glad you made it here. So what's your background, Ted? I know you for a million years. We've been doing this a long time. Yeah, well, Maybe you may not be aware, but I grew up on Long Island. I was a New Yorker. Really? Not a fan of sports up there. I'm a Philadelphia true and true sports fan. <laughs> I got my BS in chemistry at post way back when, and eventually, uh, due to lack of employment, I decided to go for my master's in environmental engineering, and that's what brought me to Philadelphia. I went to Drexel. I have a chemistry background and the environmental background, and that's why a lot of my focus at work is on groundwater remediation. Right. You've helped me out immensely over the years. I have a pro like you at my disposal somewhat. So, And then how long you've been at PureLite? Pretty much the majority of my career I've been with PureLite. I'm in my 32nd year. I started back in 1990. Prior to that, I was a senior technical sales manager at Calgon Water Management, not the carbon company, yeah, but no. water management. So mm -hmm. dealt with cooling towers and boilers, and that's where the chemistry came in and became very important. Yeah. And then learning about feed water pretreatment gave me a good background in ion exchange before I got to PureLite. Cool. And then PureLite was somewhat of a fledgling company and uh, has taken off over the years, and everybody knows them. And I won't do an infomercial for them, but they're a good company. <laughs> I've known them, known the owners. And it was so funny. For a while there, people thought we were associated with uh, PureLite, but they were family of some sort. No, it's just that we both started our companies together way back right. when, when I was ResChem. I think the first person I met was uh, your sister, Denise. I actually competed with her. She was selling Purolite resin. I was selling Bayer resin when I was with Calgon, and and we knocked heads a couple times. When I got to Purolite, and I knew the relationship with uh, that Denise and Bob had with Purolite, but we weren't selling them anything. So I said, yeah. that doesn't make sense. So we got together and, you know, the rest is history. We've really developed a good relationship over the years. Yep. And you've been a great resource for me to tap into because I've fooled most of my customer base out there to think, and I know what I'm talking about, but it's people like <laughs> Ted that I go, Ted, help, help. Yeah. So one of the biggest issues that we find out here is the guy's using anion resin for, uh, say, nitrate removal or tannin removal. And I brought Ted in to explain some pH shifts that happen because anion resin, it will dealkalize the water. So I want to do like a dealkalization for dummies here, the first part, and then the second part may be a little less for the dummies. So everybody hang on. But what makes anion resin? I mean, there's type 1, type 2, gel, non-porous, macroporous. It's like anion is like the cool kid resin. You got to be like the cool kid. To, it's, yeah. it's not like softening resin where it's, oh, yeah, well, yeah, just got times 10 and 
some macropores and it's really just removing cations. But yeah, anion is kind of funny. So what makes it? Let me give you a little late description on how we make resin. I think that might, might help. It might make sense. Yeah. So initially when you make any type of resin, when it's cation or anion, you make a copolymer with two monomers, one called polystyrene, one called divinyl benzene. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody's heard of the term DVB or cross-linking, particularly comes to cation resin. Everybody wants an 8% cross-link cation resin. Yep. So you add about 8% of this divinyl benzene as a cross-linker, and it's the glue that holds that whole bead together. So initially you're making a little plastic bead, which does nothing. It's inert. Mm-hmm. To make it functional with a cation, you react it with sulfuric acid and you put a functional group on called a sulfonic acid group. That's what does the exchange for calcium magnesium when you're softening. Mm-hmm. But with an anion resin, it's a lot different. You take a similar copolymer and there's a few steps before you put the functional group on, but which is not important right now. But what the functional group is, it's an amine called trimethylamine. So you aminate the copolymer, put that amine functional group on, which is basically in the, has a positive charge and it has a chloride ion on it, which is negative. So now you can make gel resins, whether cation or anion, you can make, or you can make a macroporous. Right. And the only difference between gel and macroporous is that you do have like holes in the resin, like Swiss cheese. So you have true pores going through the resin. And the way you make that happen is when you make the copolymer, we add what's called a porogen, which is an alcohol. What happens is that the polymer creates the pores around the alcohol when you're making the polymer, and then you wash the alcohol out and you're left with a macroporous resin, and then you go functionalize it like you would to make a cation or functionalize it with an amine to make an anion. So This is where I'll butt in and say this is why anion resins cost two to three times more, maybe three or four times more than a a run-of-the-mill cation resin. Now you're here what goes into making an anion resin and why they're the cool kid resins. Right, right. It's a lot more complicated. There's a step called chloromethylation, which you do before you aminate, and that's the part of the process that I don't think is really important this time. But you're right. It's more expensive to make than cation resin, but it has an important function, whether you're doing chloride-type applications where you're regenerating with brine or you using it in a demineralizer where you're regenerating with sodium hydroxide. You can't demineralize water without an anion. So. Right. If we keep into the dealkalinity, dealkalimications <laughs> right. with this whole podcast, what's the resin anion du jour that we would use, say, for say, residential dealkalization, and I say that because sometimes this process you just said will create somewhat of an industrial fishy smell to industrial anion resins. For our purposes, what type of anion resin will you use to in a home to dealkalize, home or business, and potable water for dealkalizing resin? Okay. Pretty much exclusively, the resin du jour would be what we call a type 2 strong base anion resin. There are actually two types of anion resin. We refer to them as a type one, and that has the trimethylamine functionality on it. And then the type two has a different amine. It's called a dimethylethanolamine, DMEA. With a type two resin, you get much higher capacity. 
and more efficient regeneration with a type 2 resin. In this case, you would use a product like our A300E, and the capital E at the end of the designation stands for suitable for food contact and making potable water. Anything with an E on it would be our E grade, and that basically would have carry the NSF 61 certification. Right. But the type 2 resin, like A300E, would be the resin of choice for dealkalization, primarily because of its capacity and its regeneration efficiency. Now, you mentioned odor. Mm-hmm. You know, we've probably all experienced smelling a fishy smell from anion resins, particularly the type 1s, like our A400. Right. The type 2 resin has a not quite fishy, but more of a plastic smell if you don't treat it after you manufacture it by doing acid and caustic cycling and then hot water rinsing to remove those odor. And the odor is coming from tramp amine that's left after production. So you're rinsing that out and you're ending up with a product that does not create odor in the water. Okay, cool. When we, we apply these resins, some of them are for tannin removal. Some of them are for nitrate removal. They're specific, the macropores. And then some of them are for just reducing the pH. We have a home, and the pH is 8 or 9. And actually, we want to dealkalize that water to drop the pH. But that's good. But what happens is, and it's some point of frustration out there, because it's the great unknown of how much pH will drop how strongly it's going to dealkalize. And this is why I wanted to have this podcast, because these pH shifts, source of frustration for our people, why the heck does it dump the pH in some instances? Right. Whenever you use an anion resin, and and let's go back to the water chemistry, because that's where it all begins. Right. So understanding the water chemistry is so important. I mean, on a softening application, pretty much all you're really interested in is the calcium magnesium. But Ultimately, you're softening to prevent scale from forming in a home, whether it's on your water heater, your boiler, or creating the scum around your bathtubs and staining of fixtures and that type of thing. There's two components in the scale that is formed. One is the calcium-magnesium hardness. The other is from alkalinity, which is bicarbonate alkalinity. So you have what we say is called HCO3. So when you combine calcium and the bicarbonate alkalinity, you form calcium carbonate, and that's the scale that you can form. So by reducing one of those components, you reduce the potential for forming that calcium carbonate scale. Now, alkalinity can exist as bicarbonate, HCO3, as I mentioned. It can also exist as carbonate, which is CO3, and it can also exist as hydroxide. Now, in I'm going to say 95% of the cases that we face in home residential treatment, your alkalinity is primarily bicarbonate, okay? It's not carbonate. It's not hydroxide. But in some of the higher pH applications where your pH is, say, 8 and higher, you're going to have some carbonate in there, CO3, along with the bicarbonate. Applying A300E type uh, strong base anion will remove that alkalinity from the water. Now, one thing that you have to keep in the back of your mind is that the resin wants to come into equilibrium with the water, which means it wants to have the same concentration of ions on the resin as it does in the water. Okay. So take, for example, you have high alkalinity, a couple hundred ppm in the water, and your pH is up around eight or so. 
the resin's going to take out enough alkalinity to drop that pH maybe one unit. So you're going to be down and still in the neutral and above region where you're not going to create a corrosive environment by dropping below seven. But in situations where you have alkalinity that might be 50 to 100, you're going to pretty much remove all of that. And next thing you know, your pH is going to be five, five and a half, six. Yeah. And if you've got copper in your house, you're going to start seeing blue stains. Yeah. So we got to look at, and I beat this into every podcast, everybody sick of me preaching, but water test, water test, water test. If you're going to come to the water doctors and I'm going to go to Ted, I need a water analysis that I can work off of. And when people have a pH drop or they get something squirrely like this, Ted, we look and test for alkalinity in the water, right? Or is there something right. else that we could, but total alkalinity, I, we run our own test at Urban's Aqua for the locals and we test for alkalinity. It's a very simple little test. A lot of these test kits that guys carry out there don't have an alkalinity test in them. It's usually high iron, pH, hardness, and that's really it. Right. So we want to get the alkalinity number to be somewhat of a benchmark. That's what my question is here. Is there an indicator to tell us maybe how much pH it's going to drop? Well, typically you're talking about a pH unit, one pH unit to maybe as high as two pH units. So in the example I mentioned before, when you have low alkalinity, 50 parts per million, pH is going to be fairly just above neutral, maybe about 7172. And you could drop as much as two pH units down to five. If you have higher alkalinity, pH of eight, which is, again, pH is a good indicator as well. It doesn't tell the whole story. You really should have the alkalinity. But if you're running that high on pH, you'll still be above neutral pH of seven, where you're not going to create a corrosive environment in the household. Okay. There's nothing they can really, we've tried this in the past, and it's a placebo, or not a placebo, but short-term remedy. Put some soda ash in the brine tank. Try to force this equilibrium that happens. And it's only temporary, right? If we put, we don't want to put sodium hydroxide in the brine tank, of course. No, no. Sodium carbonate would be something that you would may want to consider when you have low alkalinity in the water. You know it's going to dealkalize the water. You know, again, whether it's a nitrate removal, a tannin removal, uranium, which you're not necessarily using A300E for those applications. You know, in nitrate, you can use A300E, but there's also nitrate select resins yeah. for organics. They're very porous acrylic-based products and, and styrenic, like the styrene DVB I mentioned, which is like the A300. But there are products that you can use specifically for organics. But as strong base anodes, they're all going to take alkalinity out of the water. So you have to be conscious of that, regardless of what the application is. And again, going back to the importance of the raw water analysis, as complete as you can get it, and we call it a balanced cation anion analysis, the better you will be. It's well worth the money in spending on the getting the analysis because if you don't see everything in the water, you may make a mistake. And the system and resin that you put in may do something important for you, but also it may lead to a problem where you're going to have to go back and maybe even replace the system. Yeah. It's an insurance policy to get the full water analysis. To get it nailed. And 
Now, I was always told that I had that epiphany moment that when we use organic traps, these are these functionalized anions that are focused on certain contaminants, like they focus on nitrates or tannins in the water. And they're somewhat of a weaker dealkalizer than a type 2 that we're talking about here in that they have more of an affinity for more, say, the nitrates. They'll go after nitrates. Right. But what you explained to me is that if you don't have enough alkalinity in the water, they won't reach this equilibrium, this pH equilibrium, because there's not enough alkalinity to, say, flip it, <laughs> if I could say, over to uh, kind of explain this to people that if you have very low alkalinity, it takes a very, very long time for any kind of a pH rise to maybe even possibly happen. Because then you go into a regeneration, you start to process all over again. It becomes a, a dealkalizer and, a, say, a nitrate remover again, all over again, every regeneration. Right. You readjust the clock. Right. An important factor in this is what we call selectivity of the resin for specific ions. And I think most people understand in softening that the reason softening works is that the cation resin has a greater selectivity for calcium and magnesium and would rather be on the resin than sodium. So it bumps the sodium off as it goes on to the resin. So your softened water is going to have an equivalent amount of sodium in the water to the hardness that you removed. Well, the same thing is true of anion resin. And the selectivity for most anion resins goes as follows. It's going to be a function of the atomic weight of the resin, but also the valence. So sulfate, which is divalent, is going to have a greater selectivity for the anion resin than bicarbonate and chloride and nitrate, which are all monovalent. However, once you start treating, initially, it takes everything out. You're taking sulfate, alkalinity, and nitrate out, and you're exchanging for chloride. Mm -hmm. Well, as time goes on, you can imagine that the sulfate taking out is going to be dumping off the alkalinity as well as the nitrate that has been removed during the initial part of the run. So ultimately, when the resin gets closer to exhaustion, it's going to be primarily in the sulfate form, but it's really going to be in the form that's kind of in equilibrium with the resin. But as the sulfate knocks off the alkalinity, you're going to see pH start rising again. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen towards the end of the run. So you're going to have to do something to combat that dealkalization from taking place. What we typically recommend is putting a neutralizer or some type of chemical pH control after the anion resin to restore the pH. Well, great, Ted. This is a lot of great, great, great information on uh, dealkalizing resins, why the pH shift happens and some of the frustration behind it. I just wanted everybody to learn what really goes into these anion resins and why the pH shift happens. I want to thank Ted for giving us a great explanation on this topic. So with that, thank you everybody for listening and we'll be back with part two. Make sure you listen in for part two on dealkalizer design. Trust the frog and we'll be talking to you. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Michael. 